We start with this new survey out of the United Kingdom, surprisingly lists the city of Vancouver as the best city in the world for young people to buy real estate. Yes, you heard that right. Vancouver, best in the world for young people to get into the real estate market. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're talking about some sort of alternative reality, but let's get into this now. My guest is Dr. Paul Kershaw, policy professor at UBC. He's founder of Generation Squeeze, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. When you saw this headline here, Vancouver ranked number one in the world for young people to get into this market, what went through your mind? Well, I went to the study, actually, to then check out, like, who owns this group and what are the data that they're using. And I think I would encourage all of your listeners today to not only take the study with a grain of salt, but with a full shaker full of salt. Because <laughs> this group's data is not at all consistent with what we see, for instance, from groups like Statistics Canada or the Canadian Real Estate Association. Okay, the study was conducted by a company called CIA Landlord, which is a, uh, a real estate company in the United Kingdom, property management company. I don't know, maybe they should have hired the CIA to do some de <laughs> detective work for them because, man, it, they got a lot of wrong info. Like, what jumped out at you? Do they got wrong data in there? Well, first off, if you, you, know, you work with the Canadian data, you'll know that Metro Vancouver does not have great earnings for younger residents, uh, certainly not by Canadian standards. The full-time earnings for young people in the Metro Vancouver region is lower than it is for the province of BC generally, and BC is lower than many other provinces. And what's more, if you look at the trend over the last four decades, earnings for young people in British Columbia have gone down more in our province than anywhere else in the country, down by thousands of dollars if you adjust for inflation. And what's frightening about that is it happens to also be that our province is the very province where home prices have risen, risen faster than anywhere else, and especially in Metro Vancouver. So whereas this CIA landlord group that clearly doesn't know very much about Metro Vancouver is saying we're such an affordable place, Four decades ago, when my mom started out as a young person in this housing market, it took five to six years to save a 20% down payment on an average price home. If you flash forward to today in Vancouver, it takes 28 years. That's losing like uh, over two decades yeah. of work, and that's way higher than the Canadian average and higher than, than the GTA. So just not sure how these data come together in the CIA. Study. Okay, well, the, the study says that they analyzed 46 major cities around the world to, look, to identify the best one in the world for young people to get into the real estate market. They found that Vancouver was number one. Like, if you take a look down some of their findings here, Paul, it says the price in Vancouver to purchase a two-bedroom condo is $312,000. Is that anywhere close to reality right now in this market? Yeah, that's an interesting data point that I was trying to dig into a bit further. The data point that I tend to look at is how, what uh, apartments are available or what homes are available with more than two bedrooms. And on that front, I can tell you that in Metro Vancouver, um, according to BC assessment data, you will find almost no units available that have more than two bedrooms that cost less than half a million dollars. And we even yeah. see that problem stretching into like Kelowna and Victoria. Victoria, again, really hard to find like more than two bedrooms for less than half a million. And in Kelowna, I think only 12% of homes are actually uh, meeting those criteria. Okay. Um, what do you think about this market overall in, in the city right now, especially for young people? You know, this is a market that's been overheated for a long time. We're starting to see it get overheated again. We hear lots of reports about bidding wars for the properties that do go on the market. 
Uh, we've had a lot of government intervention in the market to try and cool things down and make it more affordable. I mean, is any of this stuff working? Like, what's your analysis of the market right now? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm genuinely frightened. And like, I just underscore frightened. In, in 2016, Generation Squeeze, we published a report called Code Red. We were trying to sound the alarm. Like, look, things are just rapidly rising out of control. And we, are, we, we have seen a lot of policy interventions since then. We need to give governments kudos for making those adaptations because it was a lot compared to what we were doing in the past. But it's proven not to be enough. And so we have a 30-point housing plan, and now I, know, I want to know from the housing minister and the B.C. government, what's the 35th point and the 40th point? Because when you have home prices rising in a pandemic to the degree that they are, then it looks like our system's really just designed to keep pushing home prices out of reach for what locals earn, and that is really yeah. harmful for affordability. Do you think a lot of analysts are maybe looking at this Vancouver market and seeing it as more of an investment opportunity rather than an opportunity for a young person to actually buy a home and live and work in in the city where they buy their home like you know if you take a look at real estate returns in vancouver i mean if you were fortunate enough to buy a house years ago man man it's like winning the lottery yeah so now you're talking about me and so like you know each year and many of the last years you know i've seen my property value go up hundreds of thousands of dollars and um, if that's what we're hoping for young people, you know, the, the lucky few who can get in, can maybe get help from family and whatnot, they may make a good return on their investment. But that then comes at the expense of people who follow in their footsteps trying to make a home. And we need to shift our thinking away from real estate being our investment strategy. And let's look at other places. Let's look in the stock market, et cetera. Go find other investment returns because our housing system has to be first and foremost to supply homes. And right now we are allowing that to just get screwed up in our Metro Vancouver region. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about that report yesterday out of the UK, it says Vancouver, the best city in the world for young people to buy real estate. I don't know what they're smoking over there in the UK. I don't know if they get the BC bud or what's going on, but a lot of people kind of shaking their heads at that findings uh, today. My guest is Dr. Paul Kershaw, UBC 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on yourself. Let's go to your calls. Rob in Vancouver. Hey, Rob. Hey, hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that study is completely off base. I and mean, you can't buy a home for, you know, three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand 350000 down, you know, in Vancouver. I think the smart people understand that it's much more affordable for, uh, you know, a young family to get a place, for example, in Langley, where we bought a place for uh, our son-in-law and you know and his family and it's more friendly and i think today people are uh, not necessarily all working in vancouver and uh, i just think the young people uh, you know they really have no chance of buying into the vancouver market it's completely out of control and it's not going to get any better you know travel restrictions are going to ease probably towards the summer you're yeah. going to have an influx of tourism and more investors coming here so if i was a young person I would not want to live in downtown Vancouver or Vancouver proper. I'd go out to the Valley. It's much more affordable and better for a family. Okay, Rob, thanks for a really good call. Paul, what do you think of that? Yeah, well, I think Rob's uh, instincts about the quality of this other CIA study in the UK is right. Like, even if you just compare the two Canadian cities, they've got Vancouver is more affordable than Toronto. But the data show that Toronto has better earnings than Vancouver and lower housing prices. So that ranking in and of itself in the study makes no sense. 
And more generally, if you just think about Rob's observations about, you know, searching for affordability further afield in Metro Vancouver, this is obviously a strategy that many young people, when they're starting their families, are looking to do. But our big crisis is that unaffordability has already crept well into the Langleys of the world, the Surreys, the Maple Ridges, the Pitt Meadows, and so on. And we really desperately need to have a conversation in this in this region, in the province, and really in the country right now, because home prices are rise where we say, let's not let home prices rise anymore. Let's figure out how we adapt policy just to stall these things so okay. we give earnings a chance to catch up. Okay, lots of calls here. Let's go to Blake in the West End. Hey, Blake. Oh, yeah, Mike, you stole my words. But what were they smoking? I'm just looking yeah. in the current Georgia Strait here, and a house on Victoria Drive was listed for 1728000 and... After an East End million, you mean? Yes, yeah. and it just sold for eight seven two one three four over its asking price. Oh man, yeah, that's I in mean... the current Georgia Street. Now, if that that's all, that's the price of a supposedly a good house. Just what they overbid. No, it's ama- thanks, Blake, for the call. No, it's amazing that here we are in a, in a pandemic economy right now, and real estate seems to be red hot. You get like bidding wars for properties that do go on the market. Steve and Delta, hi, Steve. Well, you know what? People pay for studies, and usually the guy who makes the study look like what the guy who paid for the study wants. Uh, last last week, a study came out saying. Vancouver is the second least affordable city in the world next to Hong Kong. So it just shows you studies aren't worth beans. And, you know, they could have looked at the statistic that if you buy the house and you sell it and your return on investment, that makes it the best city to buy a house in. But but house flipping isn't owning property. So, you know, statistics, we all know it's it's. It's how the statistics are calculated and analyzed. So it's the silliest study I've ever heard in my life, pretty much. Yeah, I think that's uh, a very popular reaction in Vancouver to this headline today. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Al in Surrey. Hi, Al. Hi. I basically agree with every one of your previous callers. They're all right, but no one wants to face the issue how do you stop the price rise? And yeah. there's one thing only that might stop it. Uh, restrict no foreign buyers can buy residential <coughs> or agricultural property in Canada, only Canadian citizens and landed immigrants. Then if people want to rent their property and a foreigner wants to rent it, you put a high surtax on any rentals that are rented to foreigners. Okay. Suddenly, I'm guessing... Okay, 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 okay yeah. thank you for that. I want to get Paul's reaction to that, because the idea of a, a foreign buyer's ban has has been on the table in the past, and we've seen other jurisdictions do it. But, Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, well, we have taken measures to reduce the uh, the influence of foreign buyers in British Columbia and in, on- in Ontario by raising taxes on those things and on those buyers. And we did see for a while that that had a temporary influence on prices. I think that we need to continue to be vigilant on that issue, but more generally recognize it as one tool in a much bigger toolbox. And we need to use every tool in that box right now if we're serious about addressing affordability and stopping the rise in home prices. Okay, star 9898 is the number on your cell. Let's go to Ash in Vancouver. Hi there. Hi there. Uh, one thing is that uh, these this prices are here. They're not going to go away. But one, one thing is that uh, when I talk to young people, sense of entitlement is what, what comes across. When I started, I started getting a one-bedroom one apartment in Kokodlem, paid it off, 
saved some money, and made my way off, and now I'm living in Vancouver. But if you want to start right away and just come to downtown Vancouver and get yourself a three-bedroom apartment in Cole Harbor, that's just not going to work. You just have to build your way up. And that's something that these young people do just refuse to do because they just keep saying that the prices are too high, the prices are too high. But there is always places that they can start, but they just try to avoid that at all costs. Okay, Ash, thanks for the call. Paul, what do you think of that? You know, I appreciate Ash's observations, but the data just shows that he's wrong. Uh, the data shows that hard work doesn't pay off for young people like it used to. So people could have the same work ethic that Ash did some decades ago and not have the same chance to get into the housing ladder. Yeah, like what was, that, what, what was that stat you cited earlier about how long it takes to save up a down payment now? Yeah, in 1976, it took five to six years in Metro Vancouver. Today, it takes 28 years. You just lost two yeah. decades worth of work. Right. So when people say, you know, just set your sights lower or don't be so entitled, I mean, you, you could get into a, like a smaller starter place, though, couldn't you? Well, getting into starter, smaller starter places is still a remarkable challenge these days. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's such a big gap between getting into that starter and then trying get, to get a place that's actually large enough to have a baby that you don't actually raise in the closet. And so the, the ladder has been broken. We're losing some of the rungs on the ladder, and okay. we need to be building more of the supply that has those three bedrooms in the region. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Have a great day. Uh, all the best to all your listeners. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking, the ideas of a vaccine passport for Canada, should you be required to show proof of a COVID-19 vaccination in order to travel in and out of the country? Canada's federal health minister, Patty Haidu, saying this is a live idea. This idea is on the table, especially with the G7 group of countries. Lots of countries looking at this idea. Haidu is saying she has, it's not been decided if Canada is going to do this, but it's certainly up for consideration. Just before we go to some of your phone calls in this one, Let's check in with Carrie Bowman now, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto, uh, who's been following this topic. Carrie, thanks a lot for coming on. Happy to do so. Okay, what do you think of this idea of a COVID-19 vaccine passport? Good idea or not? Well, you know, when it comes to global travel, it's going to happen whether I or anyone else thinks it's a good idea or not. Uh, remembering we've got some precedent for this, right? Some some yeah. people listening might be, remember the yellow cards. They're still in existence, actually. So there's places in the world where you actually can't enter the country without showing you're vaccinated, you know, for yellow fever and things like this. So I do think it's coming. You know, I'm talking only about travel right now, okay? But but I think if Canada says, you know what, we're not doing it, it could really mess things up for a lot of traveling Canadians because you could have all sorts of different standards all over the world and it could get really messy. Yeah, I think so. It does seem to be coming as well. When you take a look at the comments from the health minister this week, I mean, when they say that this is a live conversation, it's on the table, we're consulting with our G7 partners, I think it's clearly an option for Canada. And could Canada, I don't know, could Canada afford to go it alone here? I mean, if other countries are doing the same thing, does that put more pressure on Canada to do, to do it as well? Well, I think it will, because, you know, like most of us, maybe we're right now thinking about tourism and stuff, but a lot of people work overseas. You know, I'm one of those people. Um, there's trade. There's all sorts of things. So likely we're going to need some kind of standards. And look, it's not without ethical problems. You know, once you create a situation where some people can do this, but other people can't, it's problematic. If the vaccines keep flowing and it's all good, uh, let's hope a lot of people can do it. But I do think vaccine passports may actually be coming, you know, within our borders as well. I do not think that the governments provincially, 
territorially or federally want to touch this with a 10-foot pole, and I don't blame them. But look, if a restaurant or a sports event says you're not coming in unless you're vaccinated, uh, they may they may have the final say on that. Wow. Wow. Okay, so a vaccine passport could apply domestically as well, potentially, or would it be restricted just to yes. international travel? Yeah. Well, I, it may be by law just restricted to international travel, but I'm not sure it would be illegal to do it otherwise. And then, then they'll, you know, remembering there's some people that cannot be vaccinated, right, for medical right, reasons. Yeah, right. And then, and then also remember, if you're eight, under, like, if you've got three kids and they're under 18, what are you supposed to do now, right? Because they can't be vaccinated at this point either, right? So, so you know, there's a lot of issues, and it's a moving target. Uh, you know, if we had this conversation three weeks from now, I'd be saying something different just by the amount of people that are vaccinated and, and how much change there's been. So, you know, the other thing that worries me is this. I know several people, you know, I work in the medical field, so I know many yeah. people that have been vaccinated. Nobody, to my knowledge, has any electronic app or anything, right? So mm-hmm. people are already vaccinated. So if we do it, we've got to create this thing kind of overnight. Okay, Carrie, what do you think about, uh, are there any kind of constitutional or charter rights arguments that potentially goes against this? I mean, we've got, we've got mobility yeah. rights in the country, right? You're allowed, to, you're allowed to move around the country. Your thoughts? Uh, absolutely. Freedom of movement is, in a, in, a, in a democratic society, freedom of movement is huge. And you're interfering with people's freedom of movement. Secondly, there could easily be an element of surveillance to that, even if they say there's not. So, you know, on a Friday night, you go out for dinner, coffee, drinks, uh, your movement, if you're being swiped on an app, is being charted. Um, and, and third, there will be some element of medical information within this as well. So you've got, you know, you've got issues with confidentiality, freedom of movement, freedom of privacy. You know, so there really is some serious stuff, and there there could be legislation, legislative right. pushback on some of this. Kerry, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it. You're very welcome. Take care. I, I appreciate it a lot. That is Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto, and his thoughts on the COVID passport idea. Let's go right to your phone calls here now and see what you think about it. Jason on the line in Vancouver. Hiya, Jason. Uh, hey there. Uh, I got uh, quick questions. One, uh, my understanding is the vaccine doesn't stop you from catching, carrying, or transmitting the, the virus. So I don't know. Like, how is that going to stop you uh, from, from giving it to someone? Well, yeah. But two... Point. But two, there's di- they have different vaccines right now with different uh, different pros and cons. Are they going to de- are they going to put like identify what vaccine you had and maybe not be allowed to go here, but you can go here? Those are some good questions, and they're ones that'll have to be answered here in the days ahead. This certainly does seem to be like a, a very very viable option here for Canada. It is on the table when you've got the health minister speaking uh, speaking plainly about it and saying, "Yeah, we're looking at this." You know that that's a possibility, and especially if our allies are going to do the same thing. But I think you raise some really good points. Let's go to uh, Rob on the line in Peachland. Hi, Rob. Hi, Mike. Hi. What do you think? Yeah. I- I think people have lost their mind over this um, uh, the COVID, the pandemic. Yeah. They've pretty much, um, you know, throwing away our, a lot of our rights. And uh, like Carrie, Carrie stole a lot of my thunder. What I was going to talk about, yeah. um, I think t- restricting us on on travel, e- even internationally, is just the thin edge of the wedge. Eventually, you might have to have a vaccine to go into a grocery store to get food. How about to a movie? Oh, watching a movie, yes. No, I mean, right. any anything like that. And and uh, your previous caller said, yeah, the vaccine doesn't uh, stop the spread. 
I could get vaccinated and still give it to, to grandma. Okay, Rob, thanks for the call. Yeah, no, this is the, the sort of slippery slope argument that's been brought up by people as well. Like, how far do you take it? Would you need to show uh, the proof in order to go in to watch a movie or go to a sporting event? How far do you take it? Let's go to Jason on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Jason. Hey, yeah, just way too hard to regulate it. Uh, you got too many different vaccines. Uh, you got one dose ones. You got two dose ones. I don't know how you would regulate it. And then with the variants, you know, well, sorry, you got the old one. Yeah, so it doesn't work for now. So, you know, it's just too many moving parts. And I think we're a couple years away before we can make it mandatory. All right, for passports. Jason, thanks for the call. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Jan in Vancouver. Hi, Jan. Hey. Um, as the ethicist said, you know, this is not an old, a new concept. I mean, such vaccination records have been around for decades. In fact, there are countries that won't let you in unless you can prove you have not had or have had appropriate immunizations for other diseases as well. It seems odd that it's just now suddenly people are worried about this because it might affect them rather than some other people. Jen, thank you for the call. Let's go to Richard in West Vancouver. Hey, Richard. I'm uh, in favor of the, uh, the passport idea, but uh, the max vaccines are being rolled out uh, real quick now, and uh, the single uh, first dose has become highly effective. And uh, I think by the time... Uh, they get the passport uh, system in place and up and running. Uh, I think most people might be vaccinated by then, and we might be close to the herd immunity, as they call it. And it, it might not even be needed by the time they get the thing up yeah. and running. Well, I hope you're right, Richard. Thank you for the call. But there are a lot of moving parts on an idea like this. Like, would you be required to get one shot, two shots in order to have uh, the passport validated in order to travel? Uh, so many questions, ethical questions, legal questions uh, to be raised here. Let's go to Errol on the line in Delta. Hi, Errol. Uh, good morning, Mike. I will not be vaccinated and I will travel. Just like all of the people who have been traveling over the last year, uh, and, and specifically the ones, uh, I believe it was WestJet, had some sort of a, uh, if you took a PRC test within 72 hours of flying and you, uh, you passed that, you were good to go. Um, and, and on the, the rapid test idea, uh, I believe we should have rapid personal rapid test kits. I don't want my DNA going to any government agency or corporation or big farmer or whatever. Uh, they should be personal so that, you know, you've got the private information. It spits out a little thing saying you're, you're good to go. Uh, okay. There, there's no okay. excuse. Errol, thank you for the call. It raises a lot of questions about how it would be done. There are some people who are not going to take the vaccine, whether it's by choice or whatever. Some people are allergic to the vaccine. Maybe they can't take it. What about them? Are they allowed to travel? Raises a lot of tough questions. Ray in Langley. Hey, Ray. Hey there. I just wanted to weigh in on the uh, sure. certification for vaccine there. I don't think that's the necess- like a-, a noble route to go because... You've got people who are exempt for the mask. There's going to be people exempt from taking a vaccine from your doctor. So, right. you know, there could be a, a discriminating level there. And on top of that is um, the, the, the vaccines 
we know now aren't guaranteed. So how do you standardize travel uh, on that on that topic? Okay, Ray, thanks for the call. I'll tell you one thing, it'll probably end up in court almost immediately if they do go with it, because you just know some, would, uh, some lawyer or some group would challenge it, certainly on charter grounds, on mobility freedoms in Canada. This would end up in court pretty quickly, I think. John in Vancouver. Hey, John. Yeah, hi, Mike. Uh, hi. The thing that I'm, I find interesting is you're talking from an internal point of view, from a Canadian point of view, uh, within yeah. our boundaries and all the rest of it, but... If XYZ country puts a, uh, a restriction on it that you have to have this passport or you have to have proof of vaccination before you can get in there, you've got to have it. And, well, um, yeah, right. And, and so that, that's the way it is. And, yeah, uh, right. I was interested in your previous, uh, the, the um, academic that you spoke to talked about the yellow card. Yeah, I remember that very well, that you couldn't get into certain countries unless you had the yellow fever injection, for example. Um, so yeah. that's another point. Okay. Right. Thank Thanks you, John. Much. Thank you, John. Yeah, no, it's not unprecedented in history for sure. And I think you raise a good point. If other countries bring in the restrictions at that point, it's either it's kind of out of Canadians' hands. If you want to enter that country, I guess you've got to get uh, the passport. All right, time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Let's start with the uh, the bungled rollout the of rollout. the uh, yeah of the uh, the phone lines uh, to book a COVID shot, especially in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. And we were just discussing off air here of how many people were actually able to successfully book a COVID shot in the Vancouver Coastal Health 369. Region. Three hundred and sixty nine. That's it. That's it. Uh, how how does something like that happen? It was 203 at 4 o'clock. Uh, they got to 369 by 7 o'clock. Uh, this is going to be the, the meat of question period about a half hour from now. You can be, you can bet on that. The liberals are going to rightly raise this as a bungled effort. Uh, I think the government's going to blame TELUS. They're the service provider here. They, oh. they blew it. Uh, they did not have a backup system in Vancouver Coastal. So just in compared to other health authority regions, uh, um, VHA, where we are, Vancouver Island, 2,395. Uh, Fraser had the most, more than 8,000. They had an wow. online registration tool as well, and the bulk of those were online. Uh, Interior had more than 2,400. And the uh, even even the Northern Health Authority, which has the you know the lowest population, uh, had more, more than a thousand people or more than fifteen hundred people, compared to Vancouver Coastal, just uh, shy of four hundred. So quite an abysmal showing. Okay, so you're hearing the government is pointing the finger at Telus. Well, and they began that yesterday at 3 o'clock. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said the service provider had to step up. In her words, they weren't happy with what they were seeing unfold in these in these health authorities. It wasn't just Vancouver Coastal. There was a lot of complaints in other health authorities that they couldn't get through. But Vancouver Coastal clearly had a serious problem yesterday. Uh, now, we've got the, the current pool being targeted for, for uh, appointments is about 50,000 people. There's 46,000, 47,000 people over the age of 90, but t about 20,000 of them have already been vaccinated in long-term care homes. 30,000 people over, uh, indigenous people over the age of 65, about 8,000 of them have already been vaccinated. So that leaves almost 50,000 people uh, to be targeted here. We hit 15,000 yesterday, so it was almost a third, you know, if you want to look at a glass half full. Uh, presumably, they're going to do better today, um, but, uh, you know, the rush is on. This is the smallest age cohort 
When well, we yeah, I'm it, thinking if we can't get this one done, exactly. it doesn't well. Now, we're going to have an online registration tool starting in uh, early April for other age groups. But, uh, yeah, 46,000 people over the age of 96. When you start getting into the people between the age of 60 and 65, 50 and 55, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. I heard from a ton of people yesterday in Vancouver Coastal. I'm sure you did, too. Oh, yeah. People who were just phoning over and over and over again. They just could not get through. I mean, how is it Telus's fault? I mean, is the government trying to say the calls were not even going through to the call yeah, center? They, they weren't going through in Vancouver uh, Coastal. Uh, they didn't have, didn't have enough bodies to answer the phones. Uh, clearly, whoa. there has to be more resources. Now, there was an anticipation they, they were going to get swamped, but I don't think anybody saw almost 2 million people phoning in one day because, again, there's only ninety six. Uh, there's only 46,000. Uh, yeah, but that's because people tonight. are hanging up and phoning again. Oh, some people are phoning 500 times. Well, yeah. yeah. They're phoning over and over, hoping someone picks up. Yeah, no, it wasn't, I, I suspect probably... 60,000 people were phoning, um, you know, numerous times over and throughout, over. throughout the day. Yeah, trying to get through. Okay, let's play a couple of clips here. Here is uh, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, talking about the problems. It's really important that people follow uh, our advice and uh, the need to only book, only call in when they can book an appointment. Okay, like that's kind of just blaming the public a bit there, I think, when really the problem seems to be with government. I think, well, you know, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that people were phoning when it wasn't their turn to phone. I think it's what you just described. It's people phoning over and over and over again trying to get through. Oh, there were likely some people phoning well, when they should. Some, but I, but I, I think you're right. I think the majority of people, just anecdotally, again, hearing from people saying, I tried 100 times. I tried 500 right, times. Right, yeah. That's what uh, the feedback we were getting from the public yesterday was people phoning on behalf of their. Uh, aged uh, relative or parent, they're phoning on behalf of their 95-year-old uh, father. I had numerous examples of that, saying they'd been phoning dozens and dozens of times and couldn't get through, or were put on hold for hours and then were disconnected. <laughs> so that's an, uh, so. There's a real uh, there's a real breakdown yesterday. Okay, here's Dr. Bonnie Henry here uh, pointing out that uh, not all the health authorities have got online booking. Yeah, no kidding. Here she is. It was not possible. Obviously, we wanted it to be ready for weeks ago, but um, it does take time to get those things together. Okay, they knew this was coming, though, so how come they weren't ready? Yeah, well, Fraser Health was ready, so they got their system in place uh, last summer. Uh, the other health authorities just didn't decide to, to drag their heels, I guess, and get this. But we've this got website. we've got administrators at the very top are supposed to be coordinating this thing yeah, province wide. You'd, you'd think so. Um, one thing I've noticed in this, the the health authorities are fairly independent and I've noticed this that they don't uh, they don't answer necessarily to uh, to central government I've noticed that in some of the long-term care situations where the health authorities just refuse to communicate just absolutely refuse to say anything and defer to dr. Bonnie Henry who doesn't have that information or that capability of some of these issues when you drill right down on so there's a bit of disconnect out there with the health authorities okay you mentioned that 8,000 people were able to get an appointment in Fraser Health because yeah. they've got the online system. Yep. Most of those are online, and we're we're going to be going online. I think April 11th is for the other for the vast majority of the population. Uh, this is the the for the first rollout for the seniors is is phone oriented. I wonder how many of those 8,000 in Fraser Health were people from Vancouver Coastal Health 
who gave up and decided to try and book online in a different health authority. Well, we had a caller on yesterday. Well, I know the, some the pe- I know other people were doing that. Yeah, well, I think once they heard the show, <laughs> probably a lot more were doing that and going online. So, Are they going to honor those? Oh, I think like so. If, if you show up at your clinic and, and you say, wait a minute, I'm looking at your address. You don't live in the Fraser Health Authority. I, Are they still going to give you the shot? I don't know. I, I would assume so. The goal is well, to get people so. vaccinated. Um, yeah. there's, I mean, for example, uh, there are going to be people vaccinated who haven't even registered. We've already seen this. It, and we've seen this uh, because Pfizer has an expiry date. Once it thaws, you can't freeze it. At the end of the day, and you're in a vaccination center, if there's if there's 30 Pfizer doses sitting around, they're going to go to the arms of people just who who right haven't there. been vaccinated, who yeah. may not have registered. Okay, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry, I'm play another Bonnie Henry clip here. Here she is talking about restrictions hopefully to be eased here in the coming weeks. As our immunization program ramps up and our days are getting warmer once again, in the weeks ahead, we can start to look at this modified return of some of the activities that we have been on pause for the last months of winter. We're not going to rush to get things open, but we will take a thoughtful, careful and phased approach over the next few weeks. Okay, real quickly, your thoughts She puts on a lot of stock in warm wet weather, uh, that the virus won't spread as uh, quite the uh, force we see it in winter. And when she talks about easing restrictions, I think what she's talking about is likely going back to the safe six uh, bubble that we had, for example, um, perhaps allowing people to go to dinner with each other in their house, uh, again, as long as we don't see transmission. But she also added in that news conference, the variants are the wild card. Mm-hmm. Couple, let's hit a couple other topics here before we take a break and then take some phone calls. Yesterday on the show, I interviewed Aaron Gunn, mm-hmm. who is a conservative commentator on Facebook. He's built quite a following there. He's got like 67,000 Facebook followers. His videos have received over 50 million views. Now, he's talking about running for the B.C. Liberal Party leadership. I think the question is, will the Liberals let him run? Do they think he's too controversial? Let's have a little listen here, Keith, to this is Aaron Gunn, potential Liberal uh, Party leadership candidate on yesterday's show. There are a number, to your point, uh, of these country club political strategists that jump from campaign to campaign looking for their next paycheck, and they've been very vocal to my uh, prospective candidacy. I can't deny that. And, uh, you know, that's okay. I get it. I represent change, and they feel threatened by that. And, and that's okay. I'm here to talk about policy and solutions and to British Columbians directly, and I don't really care what they think. You mentioned Mark Marison. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know this individual, but other people have told me mainly bad things about him. And as far as I'm concerned, he's the personification of what is wrong with this, this party. Okay, Mark Marison is the ex-husband of Christy Clark, a very prominent liberal who's been saying, don't let this guy run. But what do you think? Well, you know, we've seen instances before where candidates have been blocked. Um, I'm not sure that's going to happen here. I don't think he's got much of a presence in the B.C. Liberal Party. I've seen no evidence of that. I mean, having a big Facebook following is one thing and good for him, but that doesn't translate to votes in a, in a leadership convention. I think Kevin Falcon is still the guy. He hasn't declared yet, former cabinet minister. He's the guy to beat. Uh, Aaron Gunn, also uh, the liberals, um, have gained power, just like their predecessors, the Socrates did, when they, when they tried to hover towards the middle right, not the far right. And if Aaron Gunn wants to take the party that way, bye-bye BC liberals, because you're going to be in the political... I think they're going to try and find a way to stop him from running. That's just my gut feeling on it. We'll see.
All right, welcome back. Baldry's Beat, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Hey, Keith, just before we go to some sound clips here, uh, we're going to continue to cover the aftermath and the fallout from the interview with Oprah with uh, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle. Now, have a listen to this. This is on the Good Morning Britain show this morning in the U.K., and you're going to hear host Alex Beresford here criticizing his co-host, the very outspoken columnist Pierce Morgan. Uh, Pierce Morgan is very critical of uh, Harry and Megan here and uh, you're going to hear Alex Beresford take him on and then Pierce Morgan doesn't like it. Have a listen. I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle. You've made it so clear a number of times on this program, a number of times. And I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Meghan Markle or had one and she cut you off. She's entitled to cut you off if she wants to. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. OK, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No, uh, sorry. Uh, so, do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, mate, but not my no, own. No, no, no. See I'm, you later. I'm being... So- sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behaviour. <laughs> OK, the Pierce Morgan just walks off the set there. He did walk off. Good morning, Britain. Well, Pierce Morgan's a bit of a caricature, but... Um... Uh, yeah, it's interesting that the the press in the UK, I think, are very defensive because they've been called racist. Yeah, and they're they're rallying to the defense of the royals in the United yeah. States. Quite the opposite. Meghan and Harry are viewed as heroes. Okay, we're gonna have more coverage of this uh, coming up later this hour. Let's go to your phone calls, James and Burnaby. Hi, James. Hi. Um. So this is about the government and how long they had to prepare for the vaccine rollout. And yeah. it's not just this. It's like with the campsites this year and last year, they have all this time. They roll it out and it crashes on day one. It's just ridiculous. Whatever they think they need, they need to start doing 10 times that because it's just getting ridiculous now. Thank you, James. Yeah, well, it, it's, it makes a very good point. Alberta, uh, their rollout crashed. Website, phone centers. You go back to CERB at the very beginning, it crashed. The Fed website crashed. Now, they were up and running pretty quick. Uh, the caller's right. Our campsite um a website crashed in the when sun. john horgan was giving out that covid relief benefit that that crashed people yep. couldn't get through on that seems too. to be effective and, and i've talked to health officials they are working under the assumption that these are going to crash and that there's going to be an overwhelming response what i what i don't understand is why they did not have a coordinated online system like fraser health had fraser health had a lot of success yesterday in booking people online yeah, every health authority should have had I, that i don't think everybody was aware that fraser had that uh, online that, that came as a bit of a surprise and why the other health authorities uh, weren't working on this when Fraser now we've been told has been working on that website and that registration uh, tool since last summer. Let's go to Pat and Steveston. Hey, Pat. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have been trying to get on the COVID line to book an appointment. I'm 90. So uh, it said to phone on the 8th, which I did all day long. Mm-hmm. Didn't get through. So started again this morning and did uh, have someone answer and said to they would uh, get to me as soon as there was someone available. Well, after 20 minutes, uh, the line disconnected. Oh, oh man. Boy. Oh, man. So, yeah. you know, I uh, the information that was printed that I got said that I would be booking for an appointment on the 15th. Yeah. So I arranged a ride for the 15th. Now, I've tried this morning to get through. What is a person supposed to do? Okay, Pat, thanks for calling. You've been doing everything right. Well, yeah, he's doing what what they told him to do. So my only thing I can advise you to do is just keep 
phoning. It's not like your appointment's going to disappear if you can't get through today or even tomorrow. Plus, or even it's the only next day. it's only Tuesday, and yeah. the appointments are still being are still keep, available. Keep next trying, week. but that's really unfortunate. Your experience. Today. Yeah, that's that sucks. Let's go to Connie on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi. How are you guys today? I'm good. good. Go, go ahead. Well, I'm definitely not as happy as your last callers. I can tell you that. Okay. So I have a Indigenous friend who I'm helping to get a shot. Same thing. Busy, busy, busy. So I called Vancouver Coastal Health, who I've worked with for many, many years, and I said, so uh, what's with the phone line? Oh, we're trying. And I said, you know, wow, call me crazy. Let's see, 21st century technology. All the other health authorities' lines work, but ours don't. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder what's happening. Maybe they don't have enough vaccine and they don't want to tell us. But well, this is not no. accepted. No, no. This is not acceptable. My family died for this country. Open the lines. Yeah, no, I hear you. Thank yeah, you for no, that. Uh, it's inexplicable what's happening in Vancouver Coastal. Again, they don't seem to have a backup um, uh, system like the other health authorities do. But what's happening in the other health authorities is not necessarily perfect either. I mean, there's a lot of people in Fraser, I, again, anecdotally, emailing me yesterday. They couldn't get through, even though they had not, They finally did switch to the online but it, registration But tool. it seems like each health authority is operating in its own silo here. Mm -hmm. And even though we've got a provincial coordinator who was appointed with much fanfare to oversee this, so where is the coordination? That's what I want to know. Let's go to Gloria in Hopkins Landing. Hi, Gloria. Hello. Hi. Yes, um, I've been the same. I've been trying all day yesterday, but that's uh, not what I'm calling about. On, on okay, the website, we, got one, we got one minute. Go ahead. On the website, there is a special box for seniors in the Sunshine Coast, Powell River, Whistler, Squamish, and Pemberton areas. Call starting March the 8th. Nobody has mentioned that on the air at all. And these are for seniors 80 years of age 80, and older. Right, right. Thank you for that. I'm in that class. Thank you, Gloria. We just got 30 seconds. Yeah, but in some cities, they're vaccinating people a young and younger age cohorts. Go ahead. Yeah, so in Seashelt, uh, Sunshine Coast, Powell River, Pemberton, Whistler, Vancouver Coastal has decided to let everyone over the age of 80 uh, take part in the first wave. Also in the North Health Authority, uh, which is sparsely populated, uh, people over the age of 80 uh, can start uh, registering as of Wednesday. Welcome back to the show. We're officially 11 days away from the start of spring, and that means patio season will be coming soon. Now, the city of Vancouver enjoyed a successful patio program last year, so will they build on that in 2021? Our show contributor, John Jang, now gets you ready for some fun in the sun. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. A quick look at the forecast suggests we've got three, maybe four days of consecutive sunshine this week. Highs of approximately 11 degrees in Vancouver. It's another reminder that with the warmer weather, patio season is just around the corner. And the city of Vancouver had a successful and popular patio program last summer that expanded on available spaces to help out a lot of these struggling restaurants. Here to talk on this year's program is Scott Edwards. He's the manager of street use with the city of Vancouver's engineering services. Scott, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. As mentioned, that patio program last summer was like a lifeline for a lot of these restaurants trying to follow the COVID-19 guidelines and for the customers as well who want to take advantage of the great weather. So what will the program look like this year? This year's program, we're actually hoping to build upon the success that we saw within 2020. So we, we definitely saw an increase in the development of the patio culture here in Vancouver. We had over 400 patios approved last year and we're hoping to see 
that number and perhaps even more this year. I think businesses have a, a good understanding of what the opportunities are, and we're hoping that more businesses will actually participate. What was the level of communication like between the business owners and the city when it came to feedback on this program? Because I imagine a lot of them probably recognized the benefit of creating more space, safe space for customers, and then needing to work with the city to accomplish these things. Well, you're absolutely right. The The response that we had last year built upon the patio program that, that existed pre-COVID. We have hundreds of patios that exist on sidewalks and in various areas of the city. But last year, we expanded the program to allow for um, greater temporary use, to allow for physical distancing on uh, for businesses, uh, generally on, again, on sidewalks and within our street, but also on private property as well. Uh, where we've actually seen the opportunity is exactly that. We're, we're talking to businesses. We're talking to the business improvement associations. We're trying to get the messaging out. We've got information on our website, which we believe answers most of the questions for those that are interested in participating in the program. So I would encourage people to have a look at the city's website and and uh, see if this is an opportunity that fits with them. And what about the benefits that expanded patio space can actually have for the community as a whole? For example, I live in Canby Village. Last summer, you know, I saw plenty of restaurants uh, that had the side streets actually shut down to vehicle traffic and that allowed them to create more patio space in the streets. And it felt very European. Uh, I I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Are we going to see more of that coming back? It's a wonderful opportunity that we've seen in partnership with a number of businesses and business improvement associations. We've seen a number of side street plazas emerge um, on many of our, our commercial corridors. It does allow for public seating and public space. In addition, in some locations, we've been able to partner with the adjacent businesses to provide patio space. So if you're getting your meal to go, and it might be from half a block away, you can come and enjoy and visit with friends or neighbors and enjoy that space as well. So the idea of just being able to get outdoors and whether it's just for a bit of fresh air or to be able to meet and socially distance, uh, reconnect with those in your neighborhood or even just the people watch this has been a great opportunity for the city and we've had great success we'll be seeing those again uh, this year rolling out and many have existed throughout the winter months but we're looking forward to continuing to see people use those it's been very successful I spoke with Mayor Walker from White Rock last week and one of the things they're looking at is using public areas like Memorial Park to provide more patio spaces this summer. And it got me thinking, you know, Granville Island is such a great destination on its own, but could it be improved if some of the restaurants in that area that don't already have patios could actually have temporary ones this summer because of an expanded patio program? What are your thoughts on such possibilities? And not just in Granville Island, but in other areas of the city. Well, Granville Island is a special case. It's actually not managed by the city of Vancouver. So I know that a number of adjacent jurisdictions and and cities within the lower mainland have reached out and have been uh, looking for some of the examples from Vancouver. And I think that there are opportunities, whether it's in in confined spaces and where there's some challenges for that trade-off and use of space, whether it's Granville Island or even just within Vancouver itself. We've got some very busy areas. Uh, I think the response that we had, how we were able to provide some space yet maintain opportunities for pedestrians and other road users to be able to still be able to um, enjoy the space itself. So absolutely, we're working with partners to be able to implement patios, not only in Vancouver, but we're hoping to share some of the lessons learned so that others can enjoy that in, in other areas. 
And finally, Scott, for business owners who might want to apply for a patio license this year, that window opened up last week on Monday. Uh, What's the easiest way they can look into additional information? For those businesses that are interested, feel free to look for more information at vancouver.ca slash temporary dash patio. There's lots of information there, some graphics and uh, links to how you can apply for your patio as well. He is Scott Edwards, Manager of Street Use with the City's Engineering Services. Thank you so much for your time here today. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Good good report, John. John Jang joins me now. And as we take a look forward for the uh, patio program, what's next that you're watching, you're looking for here on this file, John? Uh, I'm probably going to try and get in touch with the city of New Westminster. Having lived there myself, I know the key is always a, uh, you know, a place of pride for residents in that area. But the fact that the city of Vancouver's program was so successful last summer, Mike, uh, there's other cities that are trying to copy and emulate that system. Uh, chatted with the White Rock mayor, as I mentioned last week. And uh, even though White Rock has some challenges with the limited space on Marine Drive, they're trying to expand as well. So I'm encouraged to see that. Okay, everybody looking forward to getting back to some sort of sense of normalcy uh, this summer. And you're right. I mean, that patio program really was a lifeline for a lot of restaurants last summer. Definitely, because it allowed them to have a whole bunch of space that they never had before. Truly unprecedented. It's such a buzzword in 2020 and 2021. But even for the customers that just wanted to go and support their favorite local business, you know, you could do that. That's sunshine. And as we're getting ready for the spring season, Mike, one of the questions that I'm now also wondering on the side is how are barbecue sales doing across the lower mainland? Because that's a surefire sign of knowing that the the warm weather is uh, quickly approaching. Oh, okay. Well, you better better get on that one. Check it out. Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, (laughs) dig around and uh, ask uh, for Hank Hill. I love it. I love it. Thank you, John. (laughs) You got it. Thanks, Mike.